So we've got 2,400 miles left to go in this 3,000 mile race. We're now in, I think we were in 24th place. We're in like third to last place. No one thinks we're even going to finish. And, you know, at that moment, I realized that this is, this is the test, not the one that I thought I was going to get, but here it is. Here we are. We're now a two-person team trying to do something that no one expects us to be able to do. Trusted and proven, pushing the limits on every shot. We never fear failure. Join us as we set ourselves against the odds, bringing you cutting-edge voices in every industry. This is the Ironclad Podcast. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Jesse from Ironclad, and I'm really excited about today's interview. Today, I'm talking with Jason Caldwell. Now, Jason has rowed. That's right. He rowed across the Atlantic Ocean twice, and his team currently holds the world record for the fastest crew ever to make the row in just 35 days. Now, along with preparing for an upcoming row across the Pacific Ocean next summer, Jason is also the owner and CEO of Latitude 35 a leadership and high-performance team-building company that works with leading companies and business schools around the country. He's also the author of the book, Navigating the Impossible, Build Extraordinary Teams and Shatter at Expectations. Now, Jason has a ton of insights into leadership and team-building and elite performance, and you're not going to miss this interview. Here is part of my conversation with Jason Caldwell. I want to start off with, uh, like I was saying before we started recording, reading your resume for the average human with average human ability <laughs> is, is intimidating, but also inspiring. And so for people that are, you know, kind of first getting introduced to you, let's start off with the American Spirit Row. Um, that, you know, rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, you know, first off, tell me a little bit about how that came together, why you were inspired to do it. And, you know, just kind of what went into an undertaking like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great place to start. So um, I, I own and operate a, a leadership development company called Latitude 35. So we do leadership training courses for large organizations and business schools around the world. And we, um, we choose to teach and train by using experience. So, you know, sometimes we'll take them out rowing on, on a river or we'll take them sailing in the British Virgin Islands or mountaineering or something like that. So half the time is spent kind of in this really cool, indelible experience. And the other half time spent with us is really an academic kind of unpacking of that and using it for lessons. So we've been doing this work for a long time. I've been in this business for 15 years now and a handful of years ago. Um, I wanted to be further separate ourselves from the other kind of leadership training companies out there and wanted to be full of people that didn't just say, Hey, you know what? Surveys show this about building teams and, you know, studies show that I wanted to be a company full of people that were going out and kind of experiencing being part of great teams and being part of, you know, not so great teams, learning from that, leading great teams, making the mistakes, learning from those mistakes, and then coming back and kind of having those experiences and that context to share with our clients. And that's really kind of how all this stuff happened. I mean, I, I played, um, or I rode in, in college and, uh, and then I, I was lucky enough to be invited to an Olympic training team afterwards and rode for a few years after college where I won a couple gold medals at nationals, a silver and a bronze as well. So I had rowing in my background and I, I really just started looking for that like kind of big experience. And this was, you know, this was back in like 2013 when I was looking for this kind of big experience, this big race that would kind of, be able to ultimately test me on the things that I was teaching. And I came across this transatlantic rowing race is literally this 3000 mile rowing race across the Atlantic ocean. I'm thinking I'm a rower and I don't even think this is possible. Like I'm, I'm kind of where yeah. you are. 
you know? So I'm thinking, I'm thinking this is impossible, but I'm intrigued. And so little did I know that that evening when I'm Googling this stuff, that's the beginning of a, a very long journey for me. And so it takes two years I, to train properly. So I built the team up, got the sponsorship and um, trained ourselves. We did mental training. You have to take all these courses too. And you have to be able to navigate at sea and in the dark and, you know, deal with all these kinds of, you know, all this adversity. And so we were out there and, you know, 2015 uh, was the first year that we entered the race. It was me and three other people. We start 600 miles into this 3000 mile race. Two of my teammates have to be evacuated because of illness and injury. A boat sails to get them off the coast of Africa. They're evacuated. Me and my remaining teammate, we decide to finish. So we've got 2,400 miles left to go in this 3000 mile race. We're now in I think we were in 24th place. We're in like third to last place. No one thinks we're even going to finish. And, you know, at that moment, I realized that this is, this is the test, not the one that I thought I was going to get, but here it is. Here we are. We're now a two-person team trying to do something that no one expects us to be able to do. Long story short, after 51 days at sea, we finished that crossing um, in 11th place, actually. So we were able to not only be out there, but to pass a number of different boats over the course of 41 days just out there by ourselves, getting beat up by storms, um, you know, 20, 30-foot waves as your boat's literally surfing down. We can talk about that later. And we finish. And there's a couple things happen. One is, um, you know, of course, we're celebrating with our families and our sponsors are there and everything's, everything's great. But to be honest, over the next couple months, I'm just kind of, it's gnawing at me that as a leader, as that captain of that team, quite frankly, I didn't really do what I set out to do. I mean, I didn't really lead this team because we had a guy that left, that left because he was, he was very, very sick and needed to get to a doctor. But we had another guy leave just because he saw the opportunity to leave. And he took it. He just got on that boat. And it's easy to get down on a guy like that and say, you quit the team. But, you know, in the end, I'm a leader. I'm the captain. I'm teaching this stuff for the last 10 years. And I failed to get that guy to stay on that boat, to make it feel that he needed to be part of that team. So I re-upped, which no one had ever done before. <laughs> I decided to re-enter the very next year. Um, I put a new team together, trained them in a different way, learning from all those mistakes I made. And we went back out the very next year. A year later, I found myself back at that start line. Not only did we win the race that year, but we broke the 13-old world record as the fastest team to ever row across the Atlantic Ocean, which was went from 51 days that first year to 35 days, 14 hours and three minutes the next year. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that for now because I know we want to we talk other things as well, but the juxtaposition of those two teams, the, 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 the way that we trained, the way that we handled adversity, because the second year was no easier than the first in terms of weather, was really kind of what, um, what, what really kind of made me believe, even though I've been teaching for a long time, in um, – the ability to kind of leverage human emotion for doing amazing things. So you say, Hey, what you've done is amazing. It's superhuman. And I appreciate that. I really do. I, I like that. I like hearing that stuff, but I think the process by which we built this team and we, we were together is what made us be able to do that. stuff. Well, I have a, like a concept too, you know, just like the, there you go. but I, I feel great when I finish like 5,000 meters, like, <laughs> like, yeah, it's like 20, it's like 25 minutes, you know, but like, so, but I, I do want to kind of dig it because I feel like that juxtaposition is super interesting where, I mean, most people, they accomplish 51 days at sea. And even though two guys had to bail for various reasons, you still finished. And for most people, that's, that's like, okay, I did it on to the next thing. But this mindset of, 
you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's fair to call it like a failure because you still finished, even though it, maybe not in the way that you anticipated. But you had this time of reevaluation of, OK, I want to do it again. I want to do it differently uh, and I want different results. And, you, you know, obviously you're someone who's studied leadership and studied a lot of these principles that comes to performance and team building. If you can dig into that a little, because you, you, you mentioned that one difference was kind of leveraging emotion. Can, can you dig into that a little? Because I feel like a lot of people, I feel like there's a lot of different leadership philosophies I hear that are sort of one size fits all. That, you know, if you have a team and, and sort of like this sort of stoicism that kind of goes into some leadership principles. But you kind of took an opposite route where you leaned into the emotion T- tell me a little bit about that. You, you know, when you finished to when you started again and assembled this new team and wanted to kind of motivate them in different ways, what did it look like kind of leaning on just their natural emotions? Sure. Well, I'll give you a very real example of something that happened in the first race. It really kind of was the thread that pulled me through the second race. Now, just to give a f- little bit of further context, there's a lot of teams that enter this race that just try to finish, which is an admirable goal. Yeah. When, it's, when they can row, they do. When they're, they can't, they're tired, they don't. But to win this race, you have to keep the boat moving at all times. And so you've got four people in this boat. So you've got two people rowing and two people resting on this 30-foot boat. And you're rotating two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day throughout the entire crossing. So that was 51 days that first time and 35 days. So the physical toll it takes on your – you're rowing a minimum of 12 hours a day. So So – you know, you know, put your 25 minutes in context. I mean, yeah, and you've got, you've got a lot more to go and then you do it the next day. So the physicality is obviously very difficult. So we're, we're, um, you know, our two guys get evacuated in that first year, myself, my remaining teammate, Tom decide we're going to, we're going to continue on. We don't get on the boat, even though we had a lot of pressure to get off. In fact, some people said it was selfish for us to stay on because there's going to be someone else that's going to have to rescue us and cost money and time and resources, but we didn't. The next four days or so, we're just getting pummeled by the ocean. I mean, to add insult to injury, not only are we down two men in a boat that's too big for us, but this is when we're seeing these huge walls of water and we're scared. And now instead of two guys rowing together, it's you just by yourself out there for two hours. And then every two hours we'd switch. So it was a lot of solitude and loneliness and you get scared out there. And after about three solid days of that, two hours on, two hours off, and just getting crashed by the, the water, I'll never forget this day. Um, it's actually the morning. I got the last shift. It's the 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift, last night shift. And I'm kind of just trying to pull in my last couple minutes before I get to get off the oars and just kind of get into the small cabin and just kind of try to sleep for an hour and a half and escape the reality. And I'm beat up. We've got sores. I've got stress fractured ribs. I mean, it's, it's bad. And Tom's behind me, he's getting out of his little cabin. And, you know, he knows how he, how I'm feeling because I was hitting two hours ago. And, you know, we kind of looking, we kind of offered words of empathy and encouragement as we transfer over, you know, good job, hang in there, go get some rest. I got you here. I'm going to, I'm a rose heart like you and all this kind of stuff. So I'm kind of looking for those words, but instead at that moment, what he chooses to say, he goes, Hey, w- what do you want for breakfast? <laughs> that was it. <laughs> those were his words. He just said, what do you want for breakfast? I was so pissed at that moment. Yeah. I was so pissed that he knew I needed to hear something encouraging. And this guy asked me what I want for breakfast. And I'm literally about to turn around and like, kind of like, you know, admonish him for this insensitive comment. When I realized like I'm hungry, I, over the course of the night, like I didn't eat anything. So 
you know, I tell them, like, I guess I would have like the chicken risotto, which is one of the flavors of our freeze dried meals that I happen to like. And he goes, I'd probably get the spaghetti bolognese. And he says, you want me to make you some coffee? I'm sitting there, I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. I love coffee. And then he says, you, you know, you want me to sprinkle that powdered hazelnut creamer that you like? And I was like, yeah, of course. Like, what are we even talking about? It's my favorite part. And he makes me a deal. And this is where I'm getting, I'm getting to a point here. He makes me a deal. He says, if you own extra 10 minutes, which was not lost on me, by the way, that's 10 minutes of his shift. I'll make you breakfast so that you don't have to make it. You know, you can just be off the oars, eat and go to bed. And that was his deal. I'll make the food yeah, and, and you roll a little bit extra. And, I, and I'm okay with the deal because I hate making the food. And so 10 minutes later, we do something we hadn't done since we started this race. I turn around, I pull the oars in. We're not moving now. And we just eat breakfast together. We literally just eat breakfast facing each other on this tiny little boat in the middle of the ocean. We hadn't planned this. Now, we're not moving at all towards the finish line. That's it. We're just kind of drifting at this point. And we just kind of start talking to each other because we didn't see each other in three days because now that we're switching solo like this, I just, we haven't, we haven't seen each other. Yeah. And so we start like just kind of sharing our conversations, you know, what's happened to us. You know, I said, you know, a flying fish hit me right in the face last night. It's crazy. And we're just kind of sharing all these kind of like funny things that are happening and not so funny things and what we thought about and all this stuff before we knew it, 30 minutes was over and we went back to the oars. But from that day on, which I think was day 10 of this race. And we're in third to last place. Remember, no one knows things we're even going to finish. We start moving faster. Over the next 41 days, we moved from 24th place all the way up to 11th. Wow. And in those 41 days, that month, plus people, you know, self or, you know, sat phone, people are calling, Nat Geo's calling, New York Times is calling. They all want to know how are you doing what you're doing? You know, yeah. how, are you, how are you being superhuman? The reality is, and the, the truth is that we weren't doing anything different. We were, tired and we were beat up and but we took that breakfast and we were able to kind of leverage each other's human emotion a way that after that first breakfast I was more afraid of letting him down than I was of the elements and he was the same way in fact every single morning from for the next 41 days at 8 a.m he cooked I wrote a little extra and we had breakfast together sometimes it was a nice day sometimes it was pouring down rain but we always had that because it was our chance of recommitting to one another because for 24 hours, you know, you lose that in your head. Like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And that breakfast was a chance for us to remind ourselves why we were doing no longer became about our sponsors or became about the world as a whole or our records. It became about each other. And let me tell you what we discovered is that lever, that human emotion lever is way stronger than anything I've ever, ever felt in my life. That feeling was how I recruited the next team the very next year, how I trained the next team, and how we pushed each other through a very difficult second crossing. And I know that was kind of a long story, but I, I'm telling you, if you want to know right now, what I believe is that recipe is to be able to leverage human emotion in a way people are more afraid of letting you down than they are of all the external factors. That's really interesting because I feel like I'm not saying it like flies in the face of a lot of leadership advice that you hear, but it, especially like kind of in the in the business world, it, it, it there's a lot of people who kind of you know emphasize let's prioritize the goal and let, let's like make make that the driving factor, not necessarily what is going to motivate individual members of the team on an emotional level to want to perform at a at a high rate. So 
you know, I, I know with Latitude 35, you consult with a lot of, of different, you know, people across the leadership spectrum, you know, whether it's athletically or these kind of endurance races, but also people in the business world. So translate that a little bit towards, you know, the, the kind of average Joe who is in a, a professional environment, but wants to get to the next level. They want to be someone that looks like that they can inspire a team, that they can accomplish goals together, that they can do difficult tasks. What does that look like kind of just for, like I said, kind of the, the, the average person, maybe they're an athlete, kind of a weekend warrior type, but you know, their day-to-day is trying to figure out how to motivate the people around them to accomplish a shared goal. What is, what, how does that translate into kind of the workplace environment? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, first of all, you have to have goals and objectives. I mean, that's, that is the, um, an important part once the team and the why is answered. But, and, and, but that's not sustainable. Simply telling someone that they have to go do something, they have to meet the sales quota, they have to you know, finish this project, or there will be consequences, is a good short-term way to motivate people. I will go do something because you tell if you tell me I, if I don't do it, I get fired. I'll do it, but that's yeah. not sustainable. Um, the sustainability comes from from the team and, and answering the question why, which I in my in our classes and our trainings I harp on all the time is why should I as an individual contributor to your team or to the larger organization as a whole, whether that's a sports team or a, a company with 20,000 employees, why should I give you all my time, all my talent, all my energy, quite frankly, time, talent, energy that I'd like to spend in other places, like with my family or my newborn son or um, friends or whatever, just not being here. Why should I give you that? The best leaders in my um, in my experience, both people that have led me or, or, or that I've watched lead others have been able to not only answer that question individually to each of the people that they lead, not only to answer it, but to answer it continuously because it changes. And, 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 I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll give another great example because we want to we wanna bring this down, not from the Atlantic, but to something a little bit smaller where people that are listening can say, yeah, okay, but I'm not crossing the Atlantic. I'm not doing all these things. Like, what can you do for me? Like, sure. I started rowing at a very small, unknown school, Sonoma State University in the wine country of California. People didn't even know they had a rowing. I didn't even know they had a rowing team. I played baseball for them until I got injured. The rowing coach came up to me. I didn't even know we had a rowing team. Yeah. As it turns out, he was one of the greatest mentors and coaches I'd ever met because he went around the school. And basically just recruited. He had no money to recruit. He couldn't give scholarships. So he just went and looked for people where he could answer that question why. And every morning as we'd be at that boathouse in the dark at 5 a.m., getting in boats, cold, and wondering why we're there, he would have something where he was able to answer that question. Where he's like, look, we're going to row against Stanford, who doesn't even think you exist next week. And what are you going to do to show them? And all of a sudden, we'd go out there for that two hours of practice and we'd row as hard as we could, not as hard as we thought we could, which is a difference. But the one thing, and I think this is where leaders and captains make the mistake, is they think that it's good enough to just be there. He'd give that nice rah-rah speech. We'd go out there for two hours and we row hard. But then we'd go back on campus. We'd go to class. We'd see our, our girlfriends. We'd go do all these different things. You think I was thinking the same thing 5 a.m. the next day? Hell no. It's a 21-year-old punk kid. Like, I wasn't worried about it he would always have another thing to re-answer that question why. I think the greatest leaders are the ones that are able to continually answer that question why is because they know they know their teammates so well. And I think that that's where 
great leadership is so rare. That's why I think repeating victories, championships, um, you know, staying on top is so difficult because leadership's burden of being able to re-answer that question why so people are giving all of themselves to you is so rare. It's hard to do. It's, it's, it's something that I'm constantly working on getting better at myself. I, I feel like the, the one of the challenges that the human emotions that tend to be the strongest sometimes are the ones about, you know, kind of self-preservation. So like anxiety and fear. And in the scenario that you're in out in the middle of the ocean, when it's down to two guys and, you, and you're, you know, there's these big swells and all the odds are, are stacked against you. Like any, any betting person would likely say odds are they're not going to finish. Yeah. How do you make the positive emotions that, you know, the, the, the emotions that inspire people to be able to objectively answer the question why and really put forth effort they didn't, might not even know they were capable of? How do you get those emotions to overcome the emotions of fear and anxiety and self-doubt that plague a lot of people who might otherwise be high performers? Yeah, it's a great question. Absolutely true. Of course, that you've got the whole fight or flight thing going. And when people feel like they want to flee, they want to flee. They want they want to. You know, the flight is a very strong emotion, and and if it's if the fight is not there, it's not there. However, I think one of the things that's so amazing about being part of a of a team, whether it's a sport or or you know a professional team, um, in the work environment, is that not everybody is feeling that flight at the same time what you can be doing is leveraging each other so that when that person's not at it at their strongest, somebody else is willing to pick them up. I mean, you can't, even I out there, I'm not 100% strong all the time. I need somebody else to go ahead and pick me up. And um, I talk a lot about in, in one of my books about this kind of like, and I use gambling as kind of like an example is that those of us that, have, that like to gamble or like to just, you know, to, to, to wager, people talk about that gut feeling and there's no such thing, you know, people say, Oh, I just had a gut feeling. There's no, no real such thing as gut feeling. There's this, um, but you get this feeling before you roll the dice or you flip the card or the day you get up on your 29th day at the ocean and you feel oddly optimistic about everything. Like I just know that I'm going to roll this die and it's going to be the number I need, or I'm going to flip that card. And people say, Oh, you know, it's just a gut feeling. No, it's just a feel. It's, it's, a, it's unrealistic optimism. And guess what? The greatest competitors that I've been a part of, they rally off that. When they yeah. feel it, they run with it. And they give it to everybody else. They say, we can do this. And when someone says, no, we cannot, they are the ones that can. They are great salesmen and saleswomen about saying, we can. I'm telling you, this is how we're going to do it. And that is infectious. Because that person who's now giving that optimism is most likely going to fall at some point. Maybe it's the next hour or the next day. And it's certainly, I'm, I'm the optimist a lot of times, the eternal optimist, but I have those days where I'm like, it can't be done. We can't break this record. We're not going to do it. And guess who's coming to pick me up? The guy who I picked up the day before, the week before. And that's what you build before you get on the water. That's the team that answering that question why, that leveraging of human emotion, that's the dividends that it pays when you get back on that water. Because you're right. There's no way to push yourself out of that. I can't do it. Sometimes you just can't get out of that. You need somebody else to do it for you. And sometimes it's me and sometimes it's somebody else. 
There's also something weirdly inspiring sometimes when you're betting on yourself. When, you you know, I I feel like certain people are wired in the way that they want the odds stacked against them. They want to be able to prove people wrong. Have you identified a ways to kind of foster that? It's sort of this edge, you know, like you're saying, it's sort of that gambler's gut feeling where it's like, screw the odds. I know myself. Yeah. How, how, what's the best way to kind of motivate that and other people to welcome circumstances where they can prove themselves, not only to other people, but prove themselves to themselves that when they look in the mirror, they're like, no, no, no I took the bet that was against myself and yeah. I, and I, I, I took it to the house this time. How, how do you foster that in people that might not have that kind of self-confidence? Yeah. Well, a lot of times what somebody would say to a person who doesn't have that confidence is you, you hear this cliche and maybe somebody who, 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 and I would disagree with this person, but somebody that's talking and trying to pump up somebody doesn't have confidence. Hey, remember, it's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get back up. We've heard that cliche many times. It's been used when you're down in, and you know, you're down the dumps and you, you need some, you know, some inspiration. And I find that to be an incredibly unproductive cliche. Hmm. So here's the deal. Nobody gives a shit anymore. How many times you get, get back up. They don't care. <laughs> People are talented. There are way more talented people than me out there doing more amazing things as we sit here in this interview that I'm going to have to beat tomorrow. All right. There is so much talent, so many people doing amazing things. It's not good enough to just get back up. You've got to spend time on the ground, analyzing those failures, talking about and being comfortable talking about all the things that I did wrong to get myself here so that when we do get back up, we're a tougher, smarter, harder target to knock down. So for those people that are saying like, man, I just don't have that type of confidence and start shifting your perspective and thinking about why you're on the ground so much, you know, it's okay to talk about those failures. I talk about my failures all the time. Hell, my first book's all about that. I mean, it's, it's the most self-deprecating thing you'll ever read, but it's because I learned so much more from it. People that are finding themselves on the ground, getting kicked and all that stuff, they don't have that confidence, figure out why you're down there so much. And there are ways to figure that out and to start analyzing that failure. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable as hell. But it's just like any muscle that you train. If you talk about enough, if you do it enough, you'll start to feel better. I want to talk about the upcoming race you're you're training for uh, next summer. But first, you know, one of the other things that jumped out is this trek in Nambia. You know, you go from open ocean to open desert. Tell me a little bit why you wanted to do that, because... At least there's something about the ocean seems unforgiving, you know, but, you know, there's something I, I live at the beach. I, you know, I, I like to spend a lot of time surfing and hanging out at the beach. There's something kind of life giving about the ocean, even when it, even at its most dangerous, you know, you kind mm-hmm. of feel that energy that it's constantly producing where the heat in the desert. I've, I spent very little time in the desert, but I spent a little time in East Africa and just know how unforgiving and brutal, and it doesn't feel like where the ocean feels dangerous, but there's something sort of life-giving about it. There's parts of the desert that just feel like death. You know, it's, it's, it's just brutality. Yeah, so um, the desert that I cross is the, considered the oldest desert in the world. It's in South, Southwest Africa, and it's the Namid Desert. It hasn't been crossed in its entirety as far as anyone's concerned, over 2,000 years when, when nomadic tribes were, you know, were, were chasing and hunting the animals as, as they crossed the desert. Um, you know, it, to be honest with you, it was never on my radar. But, um, and I get offers to do races and big adventures on the weekly. I get emails and phone calls and all this stuff from people that I don't even know. And, you know, a lot of times they, they, they've heard my reputation. They, they would like to do something with me. Other times they're trying to get, you know, into the 
you know, into my ability to raise funds or whatever it is, but I say no to 99% of them. Um, but this particular adventure, um, was brought to me by someone I very much respect. Um, a guy, an adventure, um, from the UK, uh, a former Royal Marine, uh, who I got to know well because he's in the ocean rowing community. He did a lot of the certification classes as we, and so I got to know him very well. And he brought this up to me. He said, I've always wanted to cross it. My father wanted to, uh, cross it his entire life. Um, and, and, and died when he was 50, uh, when his dad died at 54 years old. And he said, and now I want to do it in his honor. And I was just touched by that story. Um, I, I, I respect this and trust this man. I would do something with him, which is rare because you'll hear most adventures tell you that there's very few people. There's a short list of people they do stuff with, but this guy I would. And as I started to research it and I just, the, I was enamored by it and I was, uh, it seemed romantic and, 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 and it sounds kind of silly to say, but that stuff matters. And so um, I started to become obsessed and that's usually how most of my campaigns start is through an obsession that I, I can't, you know, quite quench unless I do it. And so that's how we took it. But you're right. I mean, I was the, I was the rower guy. I rode in college. I rode an elite team. I, I rode two oceans, like kind of people are like stay in your lane man. just keep rowing. But I wanted to prove that it wasn't, um, that I wasn't just a good rower, but that it's up here and it's mental and it's, it's building teams that really matters. I said, what, I mean, this is talk about the opposite and the spectrum. Terra firma with not a drop in sight. Let's do it. We spent about a year and a half training for it. And then that's what happened. And, um, you know, it didn't, as, as almost all of these things happen, they didn't, it didn't go according to plan. Um, this Royal Marine, who, as I've mentioned, is probably one of the toughest um, athletes and men I've ever met. Um, multiple tours in Afghanistan, he made it four and a half hours of this desert. We started and four and a half hours later, he was showing signs of heat stroke and had to take assistance from the um, the, uh, support crew and the camera crew that were following us. And so he was out because it had to be unassisted. We couldn't take anything from them. A day and a half later, um, one of my, my closest teammates, Angus Collins, who I do almost all my adventures with at this point, he's like a brother to me. He made it another day and a half and he passed out and smashed his head on a rock and he was out. So uh, here I am on day, officially day three, with more in front of me than behind me. And I'm here I am by myself. This was not supposed to be a, a, a solo crossing. You know, I none of my none of my, uh, you know, my plans had me just being by myself in it. And, you know, we're digging for water and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just starting to think, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this by myself. I don't know if I have enough confidence in finding the water. I don't know if I have enough confidence in, in, in cleaning the water and in keeping myself safe. We're getting into lion territory now. And I'm just truly, truly scared. And one of the things that I find out is, uh, you know, and I learned a lot about myself in that desert and, you know, and I'm with you too. I love the ocean. I feel like it's life giving, but people would sit here and tell you that the desert's the same thing. And I absolutely believe it now. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm out there and I, I found that one of the things is when, when you have a lot of confidence, we talked about the spectrum of confidence from zero to, to, to highly confident. I have a lot of confidence. I can see far in, in the future. You know, I can see days in the future. I mean, when I'm rowing, I can I can look a week out and see what we're trying to do and where we want to be a week out. I, you know, and as the confidence gets lower, that kind of vision starts to get a little closer and closer. And sometimes my confidence is so low, I'm just trying to take the next stroke. I'm just trying to get through that two-hour shift. And in, in, in the desert, my confidence stayed low for a very, very long time. And I um, I, I didn't think I could do it. And I was just trying to take one step and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a quick story here. And, and, and this will say this. I, I was, I was, I thought I was going to quit. It's the closest I've ever been to quitting. The ocean rose, never this close. 
Um, I, I come hobbling in. I've got infected foot. I get into a, 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 a small, a small uh, concession area as we're about to get into lion territory the next day. I just don't have it. I, I'm scared. I'm hurt. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to call out. I, I realize I'm going to call out the next morning. And this kid, this small kid, he, uh, he, he was really kind of interested in what I was doing. Though they don't see a lot of, a lot of Westerners in that yeah. middle of the desert. And he, he found he was watching me and getting my tent set up. And then as the sun went down, he came out and he wanted to talk to me. And he kind of he, he knew English. He was actually end up going to school in the capital of Namibia. And so he was able to, um, you know, so he knew English pretty well. And, uh, you know, I don't know what to say to this kid. <laughs> we don't have much in common. So, I, you know, he's 18 years old. And so I just say, like, you know, what do you want to do? Like, what are you going to do with your, you know, with, with your life? What are you going to do when you grow up? Kind of, that's just kind of what you say to kids. Yeah. And he says, I want to be a pilot without hesitation. I'm going to be a pilot. And I'm, I'm in the middle of, we're in the middle of the African desert. You know, I mean, this is incredible. And he just like that says he wants to be a pilot. I said, have you ever been on a plane? He goes, no, I've never been on a plane. I said, have you ever, like, have you ever even seen a plane? Goes, and, you know, he points at the sky. Sometimes they cross. Yeah. And here I'm realizing at this moment, this kid's never going to be a pilot. Like, I hate to say it. This sounds very harsh, but he's not going to. I mean, he, he is in the middle of nowhere. His parents have already passed away. He's now being taken care of by his older brother and his aunt, they are responsible for this concession area where they get paid a very meager sum of money to handle this part of the wildlife. Make sure that if they, they if the poachers come in, they, they call people, all this kind of stuff. This kid's never going to be a pilot. And, but his conviction for it, his, his hope for it. And I thought to myself, man, I'm out here just trying to cross this desert that he calls his home. I've got everything available to me. I've got every single thing I need at my disposal to make this crossing. This kid's got nothing. And his hope is I'm still going to be a pilot. And I don't know where he is today. I wish I did. I mean, I'm, I, I assume he's in the same place, but little does he know he's out there half a world right, right, right now. But when I woke up the next morning, I never told anyone that I thought about quitting. I put my gear back on, packed my pack, made sure I had enough water. And I went on. No one ever knew that that was in my lowest day, but that kid saved me because uh, again, that's what this, these adventures do. They give you this unique perspective that is almost impossible to find in our day to day. Yeah, that, that's incredible. That's an incredible story. And, you know, there are, you know, you mentioned, you know, that, that child, you meet people in these circumstances that may not have had all of the, you know, opportunities that people in the West have, but there's a sense of resiliency mm-hmm. that is really inspiring. And I think it's easy, it's easy to kind of, um, you know, it can kind of be out of sight, out of mind sometimes. But when you meet people like that, if you get to, you know, if, if people have the the opportunity to travel, it really is inspiring, especially that childlike enthusiasm for big goals. Uh, you know, uh, Jason, I want to talk about something that you have coming up next summer, to my understanding. It, it's your next big row, which is actually across the Pacific Ocean. It, it, tell me a little bit about that. Uh, you know, how does it how does it compare to to the Atlantic row, and and also how does your preparation prepare both physically and mentally for something like that? Yeah, so this is actually a row that was supposed to happen this year. Um, in fact, I would have probably been back about two weeks ago, so I'd have been a lot skinnier than you see me right now, <laughs> and probably a lot darker too. And um, but you know, due to COVID, we had to pull the plug. In fact, my team, we, it's a race, um, starts in San Francisco, goes to Hawaii. That's the start and finish. It's 2,500 miles, give or take. 
And so it's about 500 miles shorter than the Atlantic crossing that we, that we've done. And, um, uh, the race got canceled as you might expect earlier this year. And our team decided that we were going to continue to do it anyway. We were going to do it solo outside of the race. We wanted to make the crossing. We were trained up, we were sponsored up and we were ready to go. Um, but as it turned out, um, all three of my teammates happened to be this year. They're British and I couldn't get them to, to the United States. I literally couldn't oh, wow. get them. Over here. I'm just the logistics with everything that's going on. Um, couldn't get them over here safely and responsibly. And so we had to pull the plug and that was, um, that was a really tough pill to swallow because when you train up that long, I think we were all kind of mentally and emotionally already on that ocean to have to pull the plug. So, so abruptly like that was tough. So it's been about kind of training down now and kind of looking a year, another year ahead. And that's, that's been very difficult. And a lot of, a lot of people are having to do the same thing right now, whether they're athletes or um, they've got goals of their own, maybe they had trips that were planned. So I'm certainly not the only one, but, um, so now we, you know, the team is right, but we've got, we've got a guy that might not be able to, uh, might not be able to do it next year. So it's possibly looking at finding another teammate. I love this team and I don't want to change it, but we might have to. So, um, you know, then we move into next year, next June, and we'll push off. And as far as if it's, you know, harder, easier, you know, that's a tough one. My teammates won't even want me to talk about that kind of stuff here because yeah. they no, can't. That's fair. They're, that's, they're I, pretty I, superstitious. I, yeah, but I'll tell I you understand. This. Yeah. I mean, historically speaking, um, the weather coming off the coast of California is very, very difficult. Um, you've got a, a, a northerly wind pushing you south. So coming off of the California coast, you've got a wind that's pushing you beam on. So it's trying to push you towards Mexico. And the waves subsequently are, are also in that. So they're coming into the boat. So the waves are not coming yeah. behind you, in front of you, but they're pouring. So you're wet, you're slow, and you're cold. So you're talking about a very wet, slow and cold first 500 to 1,000 miles. Then the wind starts filling in and pushing from the east and starting to push you towards Hawaii. But you have to be careful not to get too far south. If you let that wind push you too far and Hawaii is north of you, you'll never make it up. You'll miss it. So there's a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of things that you have to deal with. So I would say that if, if the Atlantic is, is Everest, you know, then the Pacific is K2. Might be a little bit shorter, but it, it's probably tougher. So, you know, I mean, why do we do these things? I mean, I think we do them because they're there. And this one's in my backyard. I, I, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I've, I stare at that ocean, you know, all the time and, and wonder what I could do to cross it. So. You know, Jason, before we before we, uh, you know, wrap things up, what we, we like to end, uh, you know, the last portion of every podcast that we do with kind of a lightning round and kind of a, a handful of questions that, uh, you know, are kind of that we like to ask to every guest, whether they're an endurance athlete, uh, you know, a business CEO, uh, we've had Navy SEALs on and kind of uh, just kind of glean some of this universal wisdom. And to, so to start off, what is the best advice that you've personally ever received? Wow. Um, right off the top of my head, since the lightning round, I'd say one of the best things is when building a team, it's, it's not about the best guys, it's about the right guys. And there's a huge difference between the best people and the right people for the job. Um, when I started looking through that lens and started doing for the, for the, for the right people, things really changed for me. That's good. That's really good. And I feel like applicable to business, sports, all types of yeah, you know, military, I, 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 you know, 
even 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 building friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, if you could go back ten years and tell yourself something, what would it be ten years ago? I think that uh, I would have. I mean, I've been fortunate to be able to travel a lot and to and to see a lot of this world as 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 a result of of what I do for work and and what I do with these races. But I think that. Um, I think I would have spent a little bit more time listening. I think when I was out there, I was talking a lot, you know, 10 years ago, you know, I was in college and I thought I knew it all. And I spent a lot more time talking than I did listening. And, um, you know, that was humbling. I think that, uh, I think that I should have spent a little bit more time listening. What is one thing that you think everyone should do every single day? If you could pick one thing that, that you would, you would tell people to do on a daily basis. Um, I'd probably say meditate. And there's a lot of forms of meditation. So, um, you know, whether that's getting an app that you meditate with or just sitting quietly by yourself without your phone, without any screens in front of you, um, and whether that's five minutes or 10 minutes, I'll tell you another one that's a form of meditation is taking a cold shower. So taking that shower and then for that last two minutes, turning it on cold and letting it hit the back of your neck, trying to breathe and think about something to take your mind off it. All those are forms of meditation. And whether you're doing it for two minutes, five minutes or, or 20 minutes, which is a long time, by the way, um, meditation is, uh, has been life changing for me. What is one attribute that you think every leader should foster in themselves? Um, selflessness. Mm. Um, I think that we, we all think we're selfless. We all like to, to think that we, that we are, we are there for the greater good, but we're not, we're selfish individuals. We all, especially leaders that are usually pretty, pretty good at what they do. They've got healthy egos, they're very, very clear on what they want to get done and what their objectives are. And a lot of times that will get in the way. Um, I think whenever I found myself as, as, as being less than selfless, um, you know, and I'm, I'm starting to, to, to see selfish endeavors. Um, my team has suffered. I've suffered as a result of that. So um, really kind of check into yourself and, 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 and see what you can be doing for others. What's the best way to stay disciplined while in the pursuit of your passions? Um, I would say, don't be afraid to quit. This sounds weird. I know. Let me, let me just qualify that real quick. Um, I I believe in healthy quits. I think we, we, we too often, uh, we, we continue with things. We, we, we continue to pound our head against the wall because we think that quitting is not a good thing. And I think that's a form of not being disciplined. Um, people that have healthy or disciplined quits usually um, accomplish more. I usually find that when trying to figure out whether I need to pivot and quit and try something else or, 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 or switch to another goal, I usually measure two things. That's suffering and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Everything you do, every decision you make, um, you're weighing how much are you going to suffer, whether that's emotional or physical pain, um, or and how much are you going to have to give up? What are you going to have to give up to continue to pursue that goal. Um, once one or both of those things reach a threshold that you're no longer willing to put up with, um, you're giving up too much time, maybe with your family or, or you're suffering too much in terms of, of, of the stress involved. Once it reaches that threshold, then you know that that's, that's the time for quit. So to be disciplined, know your thresholds for suffering and for sacrifice, know them well. And if you be honest with yourself and if one or both of those cross that threshold, be disciplined enough to be, to get out of there and to do something different. That's good. That's good. I, and I feel like that's one that 
depending on the person, depending on their personality, depending on their ego, it's hard to do sometimes. But, you know, you, you know, it's kind of the know when to hold them, know when to fold them type exactly. of thing. You got to play, you got to know when to play the right hand. Yeah, Kenny so, Rogers knew it way before we did. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so what would you tell a young listener who really wants to make an impact on the world, but doesn't know where to get started? You know, they got big dreams. They're kind of in that boat where they know they have things they want to accomplish, but it, but it's like what we were talking about earlier. It seems like the odds are stacked against them. What would you say to them to be like, okay, here's the first step you need to take? Yeah. I mean, first of all, good for you for knowing that you want to change the world at a young age. I, first of all, I would say to any young person who says that they already know that, that I'm just so impressed because I certainly didn't know that, um, at a young age, I was living day to day. Um, but I think, I think start small, don't start big. You know, if you, if your goal is to change the world then start by helping, helping somebody that, you know, and a task that they need help with, uh, you know, start by volunteering one hour a week, one hour a month. Um, I think people get ambitious and, um, I think sometimes they bite off more than they can chew and then they believe that it's not sustainable. I mean, everything that I've accomplished in my, my career has been because I've continued to go, you know, it, it's been, you know, rowing across an ocean is just not stopping, you know, trekking across a desert is not stop walking. I mean, all these things are just pursuit, um, just, just, just keep on going. And I think that if you try to look at a 3000 mile ocean crossing, you will quit. It seems impossible. But if you look at a two hour shift, that seems reasonable before you know it, you're halfway there and you might as well just keep on going. So for that young kid, congrats to you for knowing you want to do something like that. Start small so that you feel hungry to do the next thing and just build from there. Final question we always ask people, and this is always, you know, kind of our most popular one, is we ask everyone that comes on the podcast to issue a one-week challenge. So whoever, you know, is listening, if you could tell them to do something and just give it one week, just spend every day for the next week and do this one thing, what would it be to, to try to get them to a level that, you know, it's a better version of themselves at the end of the week? I'm going to go back to the cold shower. This sounds weird, but here we go. If you ever, If you've never heard of... Um, Wim Hof, who's a person, a, a Dutch guy who does all this yeah. cold cryotherapy, look him up. But before you do that, if you just want a one week challenge, I challenge you every day after you take your shower, you turn it all the way cold, you let it hit the back of your neck and you try to control your breathing. It is going to feel awful on that first day and you're going to barely make it 20 seconds. And if that's all you made it, then that's all you made. It. And the next time, try to make it 40 seconds. Try to build you up so at the end of the week, you're at two minutes under that cold shower. If you can do that, I promise you, when you get out of the shower shade, you'll feel like you have more energy. You'll feel a little bit more clear in the head, and then you'll be excited to do the next time. And if you can make it to two minutes by that end of the week, I'm going to tell you something. You're on to something, and then you can start. You can either contact me or look up Wim Hof and find out a way that you can uh, continue to pursue that. Two minutes is, that's, it seems like a long time, it's but I believe time. you that it's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's, I, have you read the book born to run? Oh yeah. There, there's a yeah. great quote in there where, it, you know, at the beginning of each chapter, he has sort of these like yeah. philosophical quotes about running. But the one that's always stuck with me since I read that book was, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, but it was something along the lines of be, become friends with the pain and you'll never be alone. You know, there's something about embracing discomfort and, and allowing that, allowing discomfort to be the discomfort so that you know that you're constantly pursuing, uh, you know, or, or constantly aware of 
the, you know, trappings of comfort. That's mm-hmm. very, you know, it, it's, it, it challenges you every single day. So I'm yeah. going to try it. I'm going to try the cold shower. I, I don't, I, I doubt that I can make it two minutes, but I've been in some pretty cold water. So maybe you, you we'll could, see. Yeah, you, you're in the ocean. You can do this. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I mean, I, I 100%. It's just adding little stressors to your daily life. We're very comfortable. We like to have, be between 68 and 70 degrees all the time. We like to be on a soft mattress, comfortable shoes you know, dressed up when it's cold, dressed down when it's warm. It's just a little stressor. And that's, I think that's what that quote, uh, and I, I don't know who, it, it, who said it, the author did it, or Scott, Scott Jerick said it in that book, but I mean, it's couldn't be more true. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Jason, this was really fun, man. The 45 minutes flew by. I really yeah, appreciate yeah. you coming on. This was fun. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that was Jason Caldwell. Like I said, what a what an incredible person. Some crazy uh, stories and some amazing insights into leadership, team building, and endurance. Great honor to talk to him. Hey, listen, you can check out uh, more about Jason and some of his upcoming adventures over at Latitude35Leadership.com. He's got some cool stuff in the works. So big, big appreciation and shout out to Jason. Hey, listen, if you want more, be sure to tell your friends about the Ironclad Podcast. And if you like it, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube page and follow us on Instagram. All right, guys, we'll see you next week.